On this week's Inside Marketing, we'll be talking about research. I'll be joined by David Cullen, who's the CEO of Opinions, one of Ireland's leading insights businesses. We are going to talk about how the industry is changing. We'll talk about whether research in general is a friend or foe. We'll talk about the future and how AI is being used in research. And we'll also talk about Donald Trump's hair. So join me as we talk about research only on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. As I said in the intro, we're going to talk about research and research has come up before and, and it comes up in lots of different guises in the podcast, but um, I'm going to talk about some new stuff and certainly from our pre-chat um, off mic, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff that hasn't come up before. So I'm looking forward to this one and I think it's going to be a great debate. So I'm delighted to be joined by David Cullen, who's the CEO of Opinions, um, one of Ireland's, if I have this right, leading insights businesses in Ireland. Is that right, David? Am I am I doing you I, justice I'll there? Take, I will take that, Dave. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I, certain, certainly consider ourselves to be so. Thank very you, good, very good. Well, before we kick off, I'm sure. I mean, I knew you from before this, and and you've spoken a lot of you've spoken at a lot of marketing and in, in industry events. So I'm sure a lot of people know you. But in case people don't, because a lot of students or people who may not be familiar with you, can just give me a give me a quick intro um, to you yourself um, and and opinions, what you do, and in the, the elevator pitch, if you will. Yeah, sure, no problem. And ju- just before I even kick off, Dave, I just uh, say it's a privilege to be part of the podcast. It's something I listen to religiously, and many of my uh, heroes have been on here. Your uh, check is I've in the post. Attentively to them on, absolutely. Your check is in uh, the post. Brilliant. Thanks. Yeah, you got that right. I, I wrote that for you and told you to say that beforehand. So thanks. Mm, well done. You good, didn't get any of it wrong. <laughs> Yeah. So just just in terms of my own uh, background, I suppose, just very briefly, I, I'm 25 years at this game. I suppose I started out in research tech and statistical consultant. So um, from there into agency land through some of the big players, Cantor or Lansdowne Market Research, as it was at that time. Um, and I set up a couple of agencies along the way, including OI Research, which merged with uh, another well-known agency called Red Sea, where I was joint managing director for a number of years. Um, and most recently, I suppose a couple of bits in between, and most recently I bought uh, Opinions Market Research just uh, four years ago. So, I mean, Opinions is a research and business advisory practice. We do lots of, you know, pure classical research, data collection, interpretation, analysis, reporting, and so on. We also do a lot of business advisory work where uh, we don't necessarily conduct the research, but we take the mountains and mountains of data that are mm-hmm. available out there to our client companies and try to make sense of them on their behalf. Um, at the moment, I'm I'm also the current uh, chair of the Marketing Society of Ireland, and I sit in the council um, of EMRO, which is the Association of Irish Market Research Organisations as well. Uh, and I think they're a very important um, representative organisation for our, our industry and custodians of quality research and so on. And I'll talk a little bit about them if I get the opportunity or if it's mm-hmm. relevant a little later on. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. So you're busy. You're busy. Sounds like it from that. That's, being, a, that's yeah. a long. That's that's a lot of stuff to be doing. We just for context again, maybe more for my benefit. Um, how big is the like the? And it might be hard to define the industry because you do lots of different things. So in, in business advisory, but research, market research, and, and in, that, in that kind of field, how big is that industry in Ireland? And is it an industry in growth or mm. what, what's what's business like generally and, and for yourself? Well, I mean, current estimates had put the industry at about six, between 65 and 70 million. Now, uh, the the lead estimation of that 
uh, is coming from those 11 AMRO members uh, who are members of that AMRO association. Uh, and really in terms of from a growth perspective, we're back above where uh, the industry was pre-pandemic, so above that 2019 level. And in fact, we're back at an all-time high from an overall industry turnover uh, back to 2008. Now, we know what happened after then, so hopefully that's not a precursor yeah, to hopefully. doom and gloom. But uh, but yeah, I mean, things are pretty healthy and it's a really dynamic uh, industry, to be honest, in, in Ireland and a very unique industry in Ireland whenever you know, international researchers come over here or we do lots of international work and they talk to us about our agency and so on. Like Ireland's agencies, I think, are among the most nimble in the world, to be quite honest, because we mm-hmm. don't have uh, the luxury of specialization to work in one sector or one type of research or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we have to be chameleons when it comes to research and really uh, have a broad uh you know, selection of options for our clients to to mm. work with. So I think that puts us in a great position, really, mm. uh, in terms of adapting to change, but also in terms of uh, working for clients wherever they may come from. Yeah, and it's yeah. definitely definitely something I see a lot. I mean, I think maybe and it came up when I was talking to well, it comes up a few times. I was talking to um, Paul Hughes, the painter, next Rothko, and even John Fanning. It's not in our DNA to be kind of out there promoting ourselves we're quite modest um, and we've lived in the shadow of the UK for a long time but I see it in advertising and we're uh, there's a realisation that you know what we're as good as we're less intimidated by London and things like that and, and it, I'm seeing it come through in lots of different things that we go you know what maybe we, we are good enough we we don't need to um, I think sometimes we may not pitch as well as the UK we're not, maybe not as articulate or polished in some things but we're, we're definitely in terms of intelligence and, and capability I, I, I see it happen so it's great to see it's happening in your industry too and um, your business yeah. um, just I, I suppose I suppose just on that I mean there there are uh, instances that I'm sure you're aware of of um, representatives of our industry here in Ireland going and taking on the UK and setting up offices there and so on mm. and doing so with considerable success. So, I mean, that's testament to uh, the ability of Irish businesses to do that and mm. long may it continue and hopefully there'll be more of that into the future. Yeah, yep. here, here. Um, so before we get into research, research and, and some of the kind of meaty topics of it, just tell me a little bit about your business specifically um, in terms of where, how do you work? Are you working directly with clients mostly um, and doing employed by them or are you doing a lot of work with agencies and like what's the bread and butter or, or maybe is it a bit of everything? How, what's your what's your business model? Yeah, I mean, we very much, were, well, we're a full service agency to begin with. So clients come to us with their problems and we help to resolve them, I guess, is the, is the short answer. And that brings us into multiple territories from, you know, comms and brand research that I presume we'll talk about a little later on through to NPD and innovation and, you know, broader uh, societal topics, political topics and so on. Look, it takes us in all sorts of different directions. But fundamentally, we are... Uh, client-led. We we don't um, provide services to other agencies as such, so we're not uh, offering tech platforms or anything like that. Um, we are uh, a client-orientated organization um, overall. So in terms of who those clients are, I mean, as I alluded earlier, they're across a range of sectors. We do work in finance, entertainment, food, drink, all sorts of different things. And uh, some of the more interesting things that we do are overseas, and about a third of our business overall is international. 
So we do a lot of work in uh, the Asian markets, which are emerging and of interest to Irish businesses and so on. Um, but also lots of work in the States in the food and drink space and um, a lot of that type of thing. So that's that's really interesting. Very um, good. Yeah, that sounds yeah, like you yeah, have a very broad exactly. and geographically um, dispersed client base, which is always great. Um, now, yeah. now, research generally, and I'm conscious I'm only looking at this through a lens of, say, um, test creative campaigns or, or research I would see from creative agencies or link testing and that kind of stuff. Um, but it is a, within the ad industry and, and marketing generally, um, it's coming out of it, it's coming out of favour a little bit to a degree. Um, I think most people appreciate the value of research when it's done well. But there are others like Bill Burnback, particularly was one of them. He and he he was a strong advocate for. You know, you need to trust your gut more. Um, and when I spoke to John Hegarty before, he he said, you know, advertising creative is the only uh, one of the creative industries whereby we don't trust the expert. Um, like we don't we don't ask the public what they think of music or it, sometimes in films. He said so, but in creative we do. Um, when we're creating campaigns, and he couldn't understand that we ask the layman what they think. So in terms of that. Um, you know, in terms of pre-tests and testing creative working campaigns, what's your view on that? Do you think, how important is research generally to the industry and particularly in terms of researching campaigns before they go on air? Yeah. Um, I, su- I suppose the, the the thing I'd say in relation to um, Bill Bill Bernbeck and I suppose John Haggerty uh, as well is that like, there was a very interesting article that I read in, in uh, AdWorld, I think it was, from Emer Keane, and she did a comparison between normal people in inverted commas and ad people, uh, and to make the very valid point that ad people aren't exactly uh, normal, normal people uh, no. in inverted commas. So, like it, almost eighty percent of uh, the creative industry is based in Dublin, and uh, a huge proportion of them um, are under the age of thirty-five. So, are they the best judge of uh, their own work? Either I don't know in terms of the representativeness uh, of that particular audience. But leaving that aside for 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 a second, and um, and not to be defensive about this in any way, I agree to a large degree with Bill. Um, in that gut is really important. Um, but you can have uh, gut that is informed by evidence, um, and when those two things align, it's a home run. But sometimes, yes, there is a creative leap that's required and the creative uh, advocate needs to back their idea and live and die for it mm. uh, and make it make it happen, even if the the, the public don't get it, mm. which is what we're bringing to the table is the appreciation of the public. But I would also say, you know, as well as that, to some extent, it's missing the point saying that uh, research doesn't work because people should trust their gut. Research is there um, to read the signals that exist within the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So while research presenting somebody and saying, here is a piece of finished film, what do you think of, think of it? And they go, oh, I don't get it or I don't like it or whatever. Like that's kind of empty research, to be quite frank. Yeah. Really, there is, a, there, there is a creative idea that underpins that particular creative but for me, is the essence of what research should be trying to validate or otherwise is to say, is there something in terms of cultural identification um, in that creative idea, mm-hmm. not the finished execution? We can argue the toss with creatives then as to whether or not that execution of that idea is on point or it's not, or if there are tweaks yeah. that, you know, accepting the fact that citizen uh, creative isn't the best person to ask, but there are some hints here that say we should simplify this or put in a little more of the brand reference points or, you know, the distinctive brand assets as they've become mm. come to be come to be known. But 
so I, again, you know, I don't see it as just a binary. Yes, they've said yes. Let's go make it. No, they've said no. Let's not go. Let's go. Let's not make it. Mm. Um, so I do think that it is. It is quite nuanced. You mentioned specifically in relation to um, focus groups and and their feedback. I mean, yeah, you like they are there to give us uh, a sounding board, to give us signals in terms of what people are people are looking for. But I wouldn't. I don't think a go no go based solely on qualitative feedback in early stage creative work uh, should be uh, sufficient for arbitration. So Mm. simple as that. But I think the other thing is that we need to work together with creatives. It's not like we want to, nor should we ever be asked to come in and mark somebody's homework Mm. um, and and so on. It's not what we want to do either. These relationships are best with clients and with agency partners whenever we're working together towards a common goal. Um, And that, that means being involved from the outset really understanding what the creative idea is that underpins uh, a particular piece of work. And in that regard, you know, we often are presented with finished film to go and test, and that's Mm. absolutely fine. But we haven't been involved in the journey to there to be able to say, okay, we need to resurrect or keep this idea on the table because we know that the creative spark, you know, that that originated from is a valid one that Mm. is real power. Um, instead, we're being asked to just say binary, do it, How's don't do it. And that's a difficult position like for us. Yeah. And it's horrible for the creatives too. Yeah. Okay. And I don't know if this is folklore or how much truth, because I've heard lots of different stories about the Cadbury's Gorilla campaign. And I was media account director on Cadbury's back at the time, way back in the day. Um, but, you know, by all accounts, um, this did not test well in research groups and in, in, in link testing and, and pre tests. It did not test well. Phil Rumble said, no, I'm pushing it through. I think it was Fallon was a creative agency. And they said, no, no, we're pushing it through. We're going with it. We're going with it. They ignored everybody, allegedly. Um, and consumers said the usual thing. I don't get it. There's no chocolate in it. It's nothing to do with it. I, but it was so different at the time um, that that's exactly why it, it cut through. So in that, like, what have you ever, did you ever have come across an, something like that, it, kind of a case like that where somebody's kind of, the audience or whatever, are just saying, that's very valid, right? We, we, I don't get it because it's not, it doesn't look like anything that came before. And yet, you know, the creative agency or the client is going, I don't care, we want to go, we want to push it through. Has, has, does that happen that often? Or is it more Is it more a case that it's how you ask the question, you're not overtly asking straight up, do you like it or not like it? I don't know if that was true or not, but the fact, like, what would you do in that situation if you, you were in the, you were the research agency testing Gorilla and it was like, no, it's mm-hmm. not going to work. How, how would you deal with that? Well, I suppose it it does come up and it comes up in, in both directions. Sometimes, you know, consumers do get stuff whenever it's a partially um, created execution. They get it at that stage, but by the time it's gone through the editing process and the meetings with clients and so on, it becomes something else. And then it goes on air and it doesn't really work and everyone mm. says that the research let it down. Okay, so that's one sort of you're asking in the opposite direction where things test poorly in research and then fly in the real world. Which is probably rare. They, that ha- it's probably rare that that happens. So it's the exception to the rule because it probably doesn't happen that often. It, but yeah. Yeah, but I but I can I can see it happen. I, I could see that happening with, you know, if you think about the eyebrows execution for McDonald's, for instance, you're saying yeah. nobody sees the food, no one sees the restaurant, all that sort of stuff. I could see in mm. raw uh, stillomatic 
uh, frames for testing purposes that people go, oh, what's that about uh, eyebrows? And, you know, they wouldn't yeah, get it. Yeah. You start to put the music on it, you cast it appropriately, and suddenly it's a knockout idea. Mm. Similarly with, with you know, spec savers, I love that ASMR execution now with the tent zips and the door yeah. opening and closing on the bus and all that sort of stuff. Like, if you heard that in... Yeah, raw true, stimulus true. form it may not work and we know that it has worked but in relation to gorilla specifically i mean it must have convinced somebody and thank god that it did it's out there uh, and it, and it, uh, fantastically entertaining but i go back to a previous um answer that i gave you dave in relation to to advertising like, if the idea was presented to people the creative idea there around frivolous joy and happiness now i'm making that up but let's yeah. say that's what that all that's all about there isn't a person in the room that wouldn't get behind that as a creative idea for mm. something so yummy and delightful as chocolate, mm -hmm. right? And and then it's up to the creative to translate that idea into visual form yeah. or into something. And if you're having the conversation then uh, with Finn, Phil, Phil Rumble, it's not to say this whole idea doesn't work. It's to say there's lots of appetite for frivolous uh, joy and happiness. Yeah, yeah. Now we're going to take a punt on how we do that frivolous joy and happiness. Yeah. That's a different conversation, and it's not research saying don't do it at mm. all. So there is a, a there is a collaborative element to this, but there also is from a researcher's point of view. There is naturally enough good and bad research. There's good and bad interpretation of what you're hearing, but in a group context, the moderator is there to moderate both the session, but also to distill the essence of what people are saying. Mm. Not to be out to try to kill the idea yeah, at yeah. the outset, but to work collaboratively to develop that idea into something that's stronger. And perhaps in that instance, what you might find is, okay, you said it doesn't show us chocolate or whatever, but it might say, you know, we need to make this more distinctly Cadbury's. Mm. And what happens is the drum kit is purple, as mm -hmm. I think it was, mm -hmm. just from memory, and backdrop, it becomes yeah. more branded and so on. And then the fact that you don't see chocolate doesn't matter so much. So that's mm -hmm. a collaborative development of the of the creative as opposed to a go-no-go. Yeah, because this, this was helpful. this was like before um distinctive assets was was a thing. So it was it was very purple um it, for, for sure. Mm. It was a huge purple backdrop. Um so yeah, it was before we kind of latched on to distinctive assets, but it definitely did use distinctive assets at the time. Um so help me, and you you made a point there, and I think um like, I don't know why, it, it's obvious to a degree, but yeah, so like it's, there's good and bad research and there's good and bad researchers and there's, and there's a skill to it like anything else. And it's worth paying for, 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 for good. Cause it's not just as simple as I think, you know, people who don't know a lot about it and maybe myself included just think you're just asking a load of questions to people, but it's not quite that simple. So there's something that comes up and I want to know how you model for this. So there's something I've seen, it's just, it's, it's come up recently for me in something I'm doing. And it's just kind of say, do research. So I look at what's going on in terms of sustainability and um, what people say is important to them. And of course, yes, in, in, in folks groups, everybody says, I want to I want to change the planet. I want to be more sustainable and I'm willing to pay for it. And they say all these things. And yet what they do when nobody's watching is they, they it's called you know, the Sheehan paradox. So Sheehan is, is like one of, allegedly one of the worst um, polluters to the environment. It's everything that people should not agree with. Fast fashion, disposable fashion, really cheap, um, cheap labour. And yeah, it's a $30 billion business. So you would think that that shouldn't work given what everybody says. How do you model for the, the say-do phenomenon and, and how do you kind of, yeah, model for it effectively and try and get to yeah. the heart of what's important? How How do you manage to do that? Yeah, I mean, we could do the whole uh, uh, podcast on this, to be quite honest. 
There's lots of different ways around it, but just before I get into ways to mitigate against that uh, bias that exists, I think it's worth just stepping back and saying that even in a biased response, so take, for example, sustainability, and we say, to what extent do you agree or disagree with these statements? And we say, I always go for the sustainable option, right? Mm -hmm. And we know they don't, but mm -hmm. 70% or 65% or whatever of people will say that they do. And 80% of people who are 18 to 24 say that they will and so on. But they neither have the wherewithal or the commitment to actually do so in the real world. Mm. What that tells you, even if we accept the fact that this isn't reality, we know that that issue is more relevant to younger people. So there's value in that to begin with. But to the more important uh, question that you're asking in terms of how do we flush out the reality from that sentiment, if you like, and there's a few different ways to do it. There's one uh, way that we can do it through wisdom of crowds. So, you know, we can ask people out of your social group, how many people do you think would pay more for sustainable right. goods? And then I can say, oh, well, I definitely would because I'm fantastic, right. but I know 70% of my mates wouldn't, Yeah, you know, that type of thing. So you're giving people the, you know, the permission almost to say the unpalatable or to say the unpopular thing, um, which I think is one good way around it. But a more direct, and sometimes, you know, research has to be direct, get off fences and so on, is through trade-offs. So we can ask people, and there's a there's a piece of work that we did called Striking the Balance in Relation to Plant-Based for, for Board Beer, which is in the public domain. We asked some super simple questions. You know, when you're choosing food and drink, which of these two things are most important? Sustainability, price. Sustainability, health credentials. Sustainability, taste. Mm. In every one of those instances, for every group, sustainability came in second place. Right. Whereas earlier in the survey, we had asked them statements like I previously described, and everybody was gung-ho behind um, sustainability. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, I suppose, a real-life example where we're using trade-offs. But there are also then way more complex solutions like Conjoint, where you've got a full profile of effectively a shelf with the various credentials called out, price included, the brand included, various credentials and we asked which would you choose so to replicate the purchasing situation and in that scenario you do get to see in the real world how important each of those different features are and and an alternative to that which is much more stripped back and i'm very conscious of not being overly technical on this uh, session but there are other techniques like max diff that present people with series of different criteria for choice and ask them which of these is most and least important. Mm. And through modeling in the background, we then get to see which of them is in truth most influential. Right. But fundamentally, it comes back to back to trade-offs. So there are loads of different There's ideas loads of ways there doing and it, ways yeah. around it, you know? Yeah, yeah. and and part of the, um, like how you, and you mentioned it there, how you frame it by asking people in your social your social network, your social group of friends. Um, so we talked about this off mic and I just thought it was really interesting. Um, so back in 2016 when Trump was, you know, and he was a bit of a joke at the start and, and then he and then he became the, the, the candidate and then it was like, this could happen. And everyone was saying, it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. Um, and all the research, all the polls were basically getting it wrong. And we chatted, we chatted off mic about something and it, it kind of is a great example of that, how you reframe the question. And it was very, very simple. Tell me about that and tell me how you, you um, basically call it right, effectively, how, what was that trick? Yeah, yeah. I, I remember sitting in a room 
full of accountants and calling it that I thought Trump was going to do it. We asked three questions, the traditional polling question in terms of uh, who's who's going to, who, who are they going to vote for? Secondly, who do you think will win? And thirdly, who do you think your nearest neighbour will vote for? Right. And on both of the, the latter two questions there, who do you think will win and who do you think your nearest neighbour will vote for, in both cases went to Trump. Not mm. hugely, um, but narrowly went to Trump. Mm. But on the question, who are you going to vote for, Trump was losing all day long. Right. That sort of idea, there's been work done on that by uh, a number of people, MIT. Um, there's a fellow called Drazen Tretak did lots of, lots of work on this. And carried that thought forward and started to ask things like what percentage of your social circle will vote for each of these candidates right. and tested it both at local election level and at, at, at a national level. And I guess it, it proved the point that this works in 2020. They Most of the polls got it right that Biden was going to win, but the, yeah. the, um, the, the margin was outrageous in most of them. He was winning by a landslide or whatever. But asking that question called it and called it tight. Um, mm-hmm. So it got that right. That approach also in the French presidential election, which in 2017, which was tight, Swedish election in 2018 was tight, House of Representatives 2018 was tight, and in every one of those instances, asking it in that way worked. And I suppose if you think about that in the context of the social desirability of answering, that's an obvious uh, reason why that works is the undesirable response. But also, not everyone's included in polling, so it allows you to, in second hand, uh, pick up the views indirectly of individuals that aren't uh, picked up on polling. Yeah. But thirdly, and I think this is really important, and it comes on to the role of polling and how it influences outcomes, is that people are influenced by their social circle. And asking them how their social circle will vote is a good proxy for how they are yeah. they are likely to vote, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, because I thought it was it was a great example. It's really simple. It's a great example. Um on just on that on that point in that election because I'm going to pull it back into marketing a little bit I was listening to a podcast a while ago with, with Jenny Romaniak from the Ehrenberg um, Bass Institute and you know they we, we mentioned earlier on they've done a lot of work on distinctive assets and um they did some research and and talking about success, um, but in relation to brand identity and, and and distinctive assets. So one of the single most distinctive assets of any candidate in that election was Donald Trump's hair, right? And which which is a bit laughable, um, and he's known for, it, but it's quite silly. But in a world of, in an Ehrenberg Bass world of distinctive assets and um, recognizability. That's a positive thing, right? So, um, and if you were a brand in the how brands grow world, that's a really positive thing because that that he owned that and that came that that was the most easily identifiable thing that came came to people's minds when they were when they were thinking about the candidates, right? And then I was looking at that, and even like the, the very the very simple make America great again, right? It, it was snappy. It was a call to action, call to arms for people. Now he looked like a bit of an idiot, I think, at times with it everywhere on t-shirts and flags and ever. But in, in a classic marketing terms, this is this is what drives memorability. Keep it simple, make it ownable to the candidate, no misattribution, and make it very very distinctive, right? So it connected. So if I translate that, it, it, even though as at sometimes on an individual level you can mock and say he's an idiot or whatever um but if you but borrowing those behaviors of how every successful brand remains successful and and wins the, the greatest share market it was classic um 
distinctivity and use of, of distinctive assets and, and, and classic brand behaviour. So the question I think, I remember back in the UK politics where creative agencies in the 70s and 80s, you know, they, they I think the, the politicians did more outdoor campaigns and they weren't just kind of vote for me with their headshot. They were, they were campaigns that creative agencies were engaged with. Do you think, long way to get to this question, but do you think that candidates and people running for elections should actually behave more like brands and should they be tapping into these things about distinctive assets and all those things that we know work in, in an advertising and brand world? What, what are your thoughts on that? I, I do I do absolutely think that, you know, I, I suppose the, the old uh, cap on the Healy Rays is uh, Ireland's equivalent to mm. the the uh, the tufted hair on on top of Trump's head. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, interesting in framing the question, uh, the amount of sort of new language that's crept into the world of marketing. You spoke about distinctivity and that, uh, you know, distinctive brand assets and mental availability and, and all those sorts of things and all those things. Yet they've become a kind of a new language for fundamentals that we kind of knew already. But this is a great example of it. And I think, you know, in in that regard, this is an absolutely uh, sort of the emotional tone of Trump is wrapped up in it in that regard is is distinctive uh, for him and that's what distinctivity is all about but I'm also struck and interested and I love listening to the uh, debates between Byron Sharp and Mark Ritson in terms of distinctivity versus uh, differentiation and all those sorts of things mm. like he does Trump did fantastically well on distinctivity Absolutely. Mm. Mental availability all over the place. Here I am, first to mind when I think of politics. That's, the, I suppose, the the, the uh, heuristic, if you like, is being first to mind whenever it comes to mental availability. And he certainly has that. Whenever it comes down to the heel of the hunt where he probably fell down and his political world and differentiation is around policy. Um, and, you know, if you look at distinctivity about how he makes you feel and the emotion and the mm. visual identity of, of him, the differentiation comes down to comes down to um, his policies in much the same way as for for a product we know the distinctive brand assets we spoke earlier about the purple in Cadbury's and the uh, eyebrows in, in McDonald's mm. and so on being those uh, elements of distinctivity but fundamentally what sets them apart then and we can't lose sight of this in the debate is what differentiates one product from another mm. so if you think again you know I think of these as those uh, heuristics or shortcuts that we use in our brain. Um, and that mental availability is a cognitive shortcut, of course, you know, to be first to find or, you know, the oh, that one heuristic that I've seen mm. that before and it's familiar to me. The physical availability comes next from a product point of view. And from Trump's point of view, it's that you're there and obvious in the in the ballot box whenever people go in to vote. But that's kind of the, the um, oh, there it is, heuristic, if you like. Mm. But I don't think we can lose sight either of the that'll do the job heuristic, as I might call it in rather simple language, you know, and that there has to be uh, to a differentiator for a product that I know it's going to do this job for me. Mm. And it's on that it's on that final point around that'll do the job heuristic is probably where Trump might fall down, but where things like head and shoulders absolutely holds up. I yeah, know yeah. It, that'll do for dandruff or that'll do whatever. And I slightly slightly off the point, but in terms of what um, Trump is illustrating for us as marketeers, around uh, distinctive brand assets. Absolutely wonderful um, example of that. And the consequent uh, mental availability that flows from that is quite obvious. Yeah, and it, like it worked. I mean, it, it won't drive, if you go back to brands, it, it, it drives, it will probably drive trial quite well, as in he got elected, but it will not drive repeat purchase if you can't do it because the 
the promise of Make America Great Again, it, 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 he didn't deliver on it. But like, so it'll work once. But I thought it was just quite interesting because it was something that was uh, even in UK politics. I just remember it being very outdoor and iconic, the campaigns. And, and, and you know, it was just really, they, they, they kind of... Um, they kind of transcended politics and, and be, became culturally important. And not the politics isn't, but you know what I mean? They, they were big and iconic and, and I suppose it was, it was more classic advertising and less about maybe for, for, for the people who don't. And not everybody does look into the policies, right? I, I'm always quite surprised about how little people know. How the, and Brexit's an example. I'm not sure people knew what they were exactly voting for enough everybody or the consequences of it and I think the framing of Brexit my, my point was always that if the vote had been Bremain instead of Brexit yeah. I, I wonder would it have been yes to Bremain as opposed to yes to Brexit right because the, the brand was Britain exiting and that became the narrative so I think how it was framed was quite interesting Um but yeah. I think the word that, like the word "stay," that they kept using, is kind of boring. Like, yeah, as well. There's an excitement. It was bad marketing like a, for sure. Yeah, things. it's bad marketing. Yeah, but I yeah. think that was came from complacency in that uh, scenario. I'm assuming everybody would would never would happen. Put the work in, and you know, make a fully informed decision. And we know people don't do that, but we know they don't. Some people just. But on that point, do you think that um, our polls? influential in terms of public opinion. You know, this idea that, oh, I don't really know and I, I'm not really got too long, didn't read and I can read up on policies and don't really care about it, but I'm going to vote for the people I think are going to win. Do polls ever influence public opinion and, and particularly the, the all-important floating vote or is, is there any truth in that? Well, there is truth and evidence um, to support the fact that yes, it does. I mean, the... I suppose the the work that's been done by Stanford in the US, it's it's concluding uh, paragraph points to the fact that yes, there you know people paired around the majority or whatever. I'm not mm -hmm. quoting this directly because I'm recounting from memory, um, but basically that the yes herding absolutely happens and people want to be part of the emerging majority. That's a fact, but on balance, they feel that polling is helpful right. to the electorate in understanding the issues and understanding the differences between uh, the different party options that are presented to them. Mm -hmm. So they see it as a positive, not a not a negative right. force yeah. in terms of the in terms of the world. But I think what what is quite telling and where it can have a very significant um impact, and I know there's some work done by Warwick University um on this, is in terms of turnout. So Whatever about deciding next time round, I'm going to vote Sinn Féin because that's where the wind is blowing at this moment in time, and mm -hmm. that is certainly a factor. And um, equally, in terms of in terms of turnout, it can have a massive impact. If you think, for instance, there's a national poll and there's going to be a landslide win for somebody, turnout tends to be lower right, overall. Right. So if if a challenger in that scenario can mobilise their vote, they have a good chance of upsetting. The apple cart, right. and you mentioned there in relation to Brexit, there were a lot of polls in the run-up to Brexit saying that you know Remain was going to win, mm. um, and and I wonder, and I'm sure there's been lots of work done on this, so I'm purely asking a question as opposed to saying what did happen. Um, but I wonder, did the turnout for the Remain vote uh, suffer probably, as a consequence yeah. because they thought the job was done? Yeah, probably because um, it happened kind of, I remember, around the same time as as Trump and everyone's going, well, how can everyone get out? We've got two massive things wrong, completely wrong. And it was it was a big surprise. Um, so pre-podcast, you, you made, you mentioned, and I'm going to quote you, um, why quoting a margin of error is almost always wrong. Why is that? Why is, why is that wrong? 
And what did you mean by that? Oh, <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were going to bring this up or not, Dave. And, you know, again, it's a, it's a show on its own. But there's a few things here, and I, without getting too technical on it, um, most polls are quoted on a, a sample of 1,000 people, which correctly the media um, reports as being a 3% margin of error, 3.1 in fact. Um, but that 3.1% margin of error relates to an underlying statistic of 50%. So, for example, if 50% of people said they were going to vote for Fianna Fáil in the next election, that margin of error of 3.1% would be absolutely correct on a sample of 1,000. So there are two parameters there that are important to look at. The first is that that statistic that you're looking at is 50%, mm-hmm. not 20%, 10%, 5%, or whatever, it's 50 um, And the second thing is that the sample is 1,000, right? So quite often what you hear in newspaper interviews, reading articles and so on, is let's say the Greens have 5% support, but the margin of error is 3%. What that really says you know, if you're saying the margin of error is 3%, is that in reality, among the total voter public, it's between 2 and 8. Right. So there's a margin of error that we're 95% sure that the actual statistic in the total population is somewhere between 2 and 8. Right. Problem with that is that that's incorrect. Because as you go away from the 50% statistic that I talked about, mm-hmm. out towards the fringes, the margin of error decreases. So the margin of error on a statistic of 5% on a sample of 1,000 is actually 1%. So what it's telling you is right out there at the fringes at 5%, it's actually between 4 and 6. But everybody continues to apply the 3% rule of thumb right out there at the fringes. Right. That's one thing. Without getting into more technicalities, and I'm sure you're... My brain's uh, already this, hurting on this one. I'm, your brain's so, I'm hurting starting, starting to so regret I'll, asking I'll, this question now. My brain's fried, but go, I'm, I'm joking. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. But the other thing is that very often, and in fact, in almost every instance, um, polls are reported on those who express a likelihood to vote next time around, which actually isn't a thousand people. It's perhaps 800, 850 right. out of the thousand. So that too changes the margin of error. And then a final thing is that they're almost always weighted because we don't get a perfect representation of the of the sample. Now, all of that is absolutely fine. Nobody's doing that to hoodwink anybody or mm-hmm. pull the wool over people's eyes. Um, but they can be misleading. There are, it can be misleading in certain instances, yeah. Mm, okay. Um, so thinking about technology and and your industry in particular, and your research, how how is technology changing? I mean, I I know it's opened up. Like, I mean, COVID probably, I don't know what you're like pre-COVID, but I know in a lot of industries they were kind of limited to Irish clients in a lot of cases. And COVID opened up access to other markets because we didn't have to be there all the time. So, how has technology mm-hmm. changed the research industry in general? And and we'll chat about AI now after this. But like, how, what are you seeing? Is it changing, or or is technology changing your industry at all? Yeah, it is. I mean, there is a lot of a lot of um, new platforms coming to the fore, research platforms that allow us to do work in more interesting ways, um, and they're making it more accessible to smaller agencies like like uh, opinions and so on. Um, you know, in terms of how we put together a piece of research and distribute it out there from a panel availability internationally, as you say, that's all becoming much easier. And there's loads of technologies even AI to one side for a minute that are helping us with auto- automation, you know, accessibility of data, uh, you know, production of reporting and all those types of things that are making it much more efficient for us that allow us to focus on the things that matter. 
if you think about even at a very basic level, social media is a boon for us. Uh, you know, video platforms, making those accessible for people to give us feedback on stuff is a boon. You know, and as you say, the the um, things like this where we're talking on Teams, uh, again, open up lots of possibilities. But I guess technology, like in every industry, it's always changing, you know, week to week, day to day. Mm. There were very disruptive technologies. If you look historically at the research industry from the mobile phone for doing telephone interviews mm. to online research, we've made it through them all. And I'm sure we'll make it through whatever techno- opportunities yeah. technology presents to us in the future. And it's, it's only, it's only going to get better. I mean, I think one of the early criticisms about online polls was that it wasn't reflective of the population. That's it has that that washes itself out as as everybody becomes literate, but there, there's still some kind of blind spots with certain, particularly older demographics. But like it's less of an issue now, so it's it's actually become much more representative. But talk to me about AI because AI is, I mean, it's the it's a buzzword uh, of of everything. It's every industry and every and and it's fascinating and it's, it's scary and fascinating. Um, and it feels like like marketing in marketing there's always new fads and new technology. But this this is bigger than marketing. Um. And it's here to stay. The genie's out of the bottle and it's growing at a pace. So how is AI affecting the research industry? Or is it? Um, well, it is uh, massively. I'd say it's it's at the early stages of that impact in terms of its, you know, what, what's, what it's what's possible. Um, and we've been hosting a number of events lately in the marketing society um, around AI and I guess the First of all, the the ethics of it, but also its application for research and for for marketeers in general. And you know, a couple of months ago, we had a, or a month ago, I'd say we had a great um, conversation with uh, Damien Lasher from Ipsos and um, BNA through Davino Donohue and uh, a, a professor in DCU around this area. And I guess co- coming away from that, I was scared a little, but I have to say, overall, I'm very optimistic about it. Um, and. I will also say that there's nothing we can do about it. It's happening mm. whether we want it or not. True. So I think where the where the real um, influence is about to be felt is in the Amazons, Googles, and Microsoft having bought ChatGPT. They're all picking off mm. uh, different different tools and solutions in the AI space, and that'll make them ever more uh, integrated into our day to day lives and unavoidable. So you know, Microsoft mm. are integrating ChatGPT capabilities into Bing in their next yeah. release. So your regular browser is going to have chat GPT capability. So that's that. That's not uh, you know, a, a, a down the road thing. That's that's it's there and, and it's happening. And I was also looking, there's a first of November, so probably perhaps um couple of weeks time we're going to start seeing a thing called co-pilot in teams again mm. from microsoft yeah we're on a beta test for that yeah i'm familiar with it we're we're, te- we're beta testing it at the moment for on a group yeah fascinating so if i if i can't attend the meeting it'll take notes for me and send it on if think about that in a research context if you're doing focus groups yeah. it takes notes for you and sends it on but not just the transcription some thoughts on what right. was said collation of thematics, the language that was used and so on. Within something that is integrated in Teams, this is not some off-the-wall piece of kit that you have to buy. There's other things that we can deliver, you know, fairly complicated uh, debriefs through uh, avatars, effectively, that look human Mm. and sound human through a thing called Synthesia. Really simple to do. 
give a script in and off it goes. You can pick whether it's male, female, US, whether they speak French, German, whatever mm. you want. I mean, that that's that's fascinating. And for on the more mundane stuff from a researcher's perspective, to take um, text and turn it into coded data mm. and to turn it into hard data, you know, I think is really exciting. And that's very simple. On the other side, though, of course, it's it's there's risk in it. We have been for years in this industry playing ads to people and coding up their facial reactions, you know, using various pieces of technology. We've been doing eye tracking to see where people's eyes are drawn to and so on. But with AI technology now, things like that can be done through your webcam in response to stimulus without your consent. What happens there? You know, Mm -hmm. my cognitive consent, I haven't said that you can monitor my performance. What about social scoring? Is that going to be something that happens? And the risks in terms of deep fake are absolutely mm, abundant. Absolutely. You can have your favorite famous person saying anything that's scripted for them to for them to say. Mm. And that's a, that's a concern yeah, politically a, and in terms of influencing minds. Yeah. Yeah, there's an awful lot. And I don't there was Tom Hanksing knocking around a couple of weeks ago about he's in some teeth whitening thing and you say it's not me shocking him of course not him but like a lot of people would believe that like if you think about research so right so um like research and polls they're they're designed to 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 capture intent or opinion or whatever and and the sentiment towards things whether it's policy or predictive and, and generative ai can do a lot of this already so if you think about it like like it could it go to a, a degree where you actually don't need focus. We don't need people for focus groups at all because AI will be able to predict what's going to happen because it's it's predictive and it's generative. Do you think? Do you think there, you'd ever? Whether you ethically, whether we would or we wouldn't, but tech, like, would you say AI could predict polls coming up with with a great with a, with a kind of fairly decent degree of? correctness would you imagine because if that's all it does if it goes out and finds opinion and captures and scrapes opinion and and kind of builds an intelligent point of view it's not just reporting data do you need people at all well i think it's been it's been proven that generative ai can you know reasonably well uh, arrive at the same conclusion as a traditional poll but it's the nuance right. of the data underpinning that so if you've got uh, an opinion on housing versus health, and that's informing your choice in that poll, it fails to capture any of that. Mm. The second thing, if if you're using it from a a data perspective, it needs some data to learn from. What is that data that it's taken from? We have no idea of the foundational material that sits behind it. Um, So I think that it can't really replace, I mean, you also talk about, you know, the the role of the human in the the future from a research perspective. I mean, it can't understand context of the world that we're living in here. It can't understand the context of our clients, the challenges they're facing, the competitive market that they're in, the curiosity that's required to come up with new solutions, and fundamentally for you, you know, the creativity um, that that's there. And very basically, as Davino Donu put it, it doesn't have any pop on, you know, mm. It doesn't have cop There's loads on of people don't have any cop on as well in the industry, so well, that hasn't are held many them back. Of those. There are many, many, many of those. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think like on, on balance, generative AI, I know it's becoming more intelligent than going beyond generative, but on balance for us, it really is uh, a positive to this point so far. Mm. But yeah. you, you mentioned there what you're talking about in to a large extent is uh, synthetic data, so data yeah. that doesn't come from a human completing that data at the end of the at the end of the, the uh, line or whatever. Um, 
And really for synthetic data to work, um, it needs some other data to work with. So it can know that it can predict how one might answer a particular question based on how you answer other questions, right? right? So that that can be useful to us and not to blow cover on it, but we've been using that for years in the research industry in a less intelligent way. Mm. So if you think about we've got a survey and there was a chunk of it that somebody didn't answer, we can predict what they would have said based on what everybody else, just like them, said and fill that data in to give us more robust data for measurement. And if you've used any soft statistical software packages, sometimes you have to replace missing values with a series mean or a predicted score or whatever. That is fundamentally what synthetic data is doing. Right. It needs data to learn from. And if that data is good, you know, yeah, it'll do something interesting. And there are companies, there's a company called Snowflake in California that you can go and order synthetic data for whatever topic you want synthetic data for. Right. I I don't buy that for a second because it hasn't been trained on anything that you know, recognize, can stand over from a quality perspective. So it may have a role to play in testing how to build a predictive model. It may have a role in testing software and Mm. pass pathways through a particular piece of software and so on. But from a pure research point of view, in my world, it doesn't have a have a role to play. But the bigger challenge for, for us from an AI perspective is the world of bots and where Bots can infiltrate a particular panel um, and start completing surveys in remarkably intelligent ways. You know, you ask someone, what do you like about the ad? And a bot has the capability now of retyping something very intelligible that references the script that you've presented to them and answers all of the questions and picks up the nice reward at the end of the day. Fantastic technology. Frightening from our perspective, um, but we have, and I mentioned at the very start, um, AMRO, but we in this industry in Ireland are very alert to that. Um, We are not particularly uh, bot-friendly in Ireland because our rewards and incentives for panelists aren't automated in the same way as they are in larger countries like China and the US and so on. But however, we are very openly talking about that in AMRO and we're sharing solutions in how to weed that out of our Mm. industry. And I do think that that's a significant um, challenge Mm. for sure that we all need to be alert to and open with clients about as well if it does become a challenge. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. It's a really, really interesting area. Um, Going back to research in terms of like it's Effie's time at the moment, um, it's I think they're on tonight, actually, when, when this is being recorded. Um, so the, the role of research in, in the industry in terms of excellence and effectiveness award, how important is research in that in, in our industry for, in, in that context? Well, I'd say um, not necessarily research, but data. I think uh, data adds veracity to your, to your case and gives it objectivity too. It's not much good me putting in an ad and saying everyone in the studio thought it was great. Or, you know, our client thought it was great or whatever. It gives it that objectivity and veracity, much as the, you know, the the creators may say we don't want research on us and they don't believe it or whatever. It does give it veracity. And I do think as well, you know, as we build um, cases, let's take Effie's, for example, you're fundamentally creating a, a story. And that story has to start with the context of the world around you and the challenges that that client is facing. Data is critical there. It mm. next has to move on to the to the insight, the spark that created this campaign. 
insight is critical there. You know, what did we learn? How did we learn it? What's the articulation of that insight? And then we move on to the campaign itself where we get to show off a little bit. But then the outcome, the critical piece of the puzzle, how did we deliver? How did we address that challenge? Data makes that sing and really is important. I will say too, though, in terms of the FE specifically, given that they are uh, on tomorrow when when this goes out, um, I think they're really important um, awards for the industry because they're not all about ROI. They're not all about, you know, return on investment. They're all about addressing business challenges. And sometimes that challenge could be fame. Sometimes it could be about subscription numbers. I don't know what it is. It could be a whole host of different challenges. And the FEs are very fairly judged by very strong, uh, you know, representation from the creative side, from the insight side and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, The panels are put together very well to allow them to judge that. Uh, And I think it's really important, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in that in that regard yeah. and we we in the research industry we have one set of awards and the marketing society research excellence awards which are coming up the results are coming up on the first of december for those um and again you know awards in general really important and for that too data is at the at the core of of what that's all about mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. i do think yeah, it is a role yeah, play really for important sure. and i agree with all that um let's Look, and you touch on some of this to start, but look, Crystal Ball time. What do you think the research agency of the future looks like, and what and what are the kind of products or services that you think um, that that a company like yours or yours, indeed, if you want to tell me that, should be offered? What will you look like in a few years' time? Uh-huh. I was looking at the the jobs market and the research world and seeing what's out there. There are ads out there now for AI operatives and AI prompt engineers within the industry who literally just they're now to perfect uh, prompts for AI engines. But anyway, that's a kind of a a, a peculiar speci- specialism that's coming into the broader business advisory and uh, research world. I'm using the term business advisory uh, advisedly, so to speak, because I do think that there that it is moving inexorably in that direction. Uh, there is so much data out there uh, at the at the moment, and I think uh, really our role is to take that, triangulate read all the signals, work in partnership with clients uh, to get them to better business decisions and to extract meaning from that volume volume of data. And that will inevitably mean that agencies change. Mm-hmm. Similarly, if you think about some of the more uh, manual, labor-intensive, low-grade tasks that are part of our industry and always have been, with AI taking those out of the equation, um, you know, the nature of jobs, roles, and so on in our industry will will change fundamentally. Um, and, you know, I do think that it. I'm very optimistic about the future, but I do think it'll be quite different, um, you know, in 10 years time. Mm. Um, but still, still healthy, still an important role to play uh, within the, the business world. Um, but it will certainly be different. Yeah. And um, well, you must be passionate about the industry because you've been involved in lots of companies and, you, and you've, you've sold and got out and, and you, you got yourself, you found your way back in by choice, buying in again. So um, you clearly uh, you clearly like what you do and uh, passionate about what you do. So, and as I said at the start, like I've, I've seen you speaking at lots of different things and I've always, I've always found um, both what you present and the way you present it really interesting, which 
kind of partly what had you on this because Rob Kinsa was at something you're at and he said, oh, Dave Cullen was great, get him on. And I knew you before. So, um, so yeah, um, if people are, if anyone listening is kind of interested in finding out a little bit more about, about um, opinions about what you do and services, where should they look or is there anything or, or and, and do you do you publish a lot of your research or is it all housed online? So where can people find you and if, they, if they're interested or yeah. could they reach out to you if they think they, they need to talk to you about anything? How can they get in touch? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the obvious starting point is the is to go to our website, just www.opinions.ie, uh, or contact me directly if you have any burning questions, uh, David at opinions.ie. Uh, and in terms of our work and whether it's published, uh, quite a bit of it is if it's for government bodies. But to be to be honest, the vast majority of our work is for um, private commercial clients, mm. so that's not really released in the public domain. So. Right. Well, um, yep. thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today. Um, I really appreciate it. I've learned, I've learned, I've learned a lot, which I always do. This is becoming more increasingly about me learning stuff than um, my audience is learning stuff. So, um, but I, I really enjoyed that because I've been, I think at times through different podcasts, we've done a hundred now, hundred and one. I've probably been, you know, I didn't really appreciate the value of research properly um, and I probably would have had a view of it as though you shouldn't ask lay people what they think about it and focus groups are unreal and that kind of stuff they're not a natural reflection of how people consume an ad in the real world so but I understand a lot more about it now and have a greater sense of appreciation for research and, and research agencies after speaking to yourself and even um, Viv from Bricolage and that kind of stuff I feel like I've educated myself a lot more so thank you for making the time and i wish you all the best success in the future and, and keep up the good work and, and i keep keep growing your client base thanks so much dave it's been a pleasure so yes that's it that's all she wrote that's all we have time for um again a big thanks to david cullen for joining me today thanks for taking the time and thanks to kira in marketing and andrea on sound and thanks as always to our partners in irish times media solutions who help make all this possible and thanks to you for listening um and if you did like that episode why not listen back to our ever-growing evergreen back catalog of 100 episodes you will find them by simply typing irish times inside marketing into your search engine of choice so ai is taking over research as well and if you don't know now you know so until next time thanks for listening the inside marketing podcast brought to you by dentsu and irish times media solutions